eyes on me. Cause I'm young, black, and gifted, Nina, all eyes gon' see. If you swung back when faced with a challenge that's meant to break you and balance scales, you ain't average. Now throw your hands on three. Gon' put them up for black, black magic. magic. Black excellence. Black habits. This black medicine. Everything black. Black chucks, black chucks, everything. Everything black. Black hug, black love, everything. Praise black Jesus. What's good, family? Hey. Welcome to the Black Men in Medicine podcast. You are tuning in with your host, Corey Gatewood, bringing you that white gold drip. Before we jump into our sit down with our next guest today, I wanted to make sure I thank all of our listeners for tuning into the previous episode and providing us with welcome feedback. It's truly appreciated. And I wanted to give a special thanks to our friends in Germany, Ireland, Spain, Australia, Canada, South Africa, the United Kingdom, and Brazil for truly making this an international podcast. So thank you for tuning in. So with that being said, let's get this show cracking as we'll be tuning in with our very first doctor of dental medicine, Dr. Albert Coombs III. Dr. Coombs was born in Boston, Massachusetts. He went on to Kenyon College for his undergraduate education. Following that, he attended Tufts University School of Dental Medicine. Currently, you can find him in the DMV area running his own successful practice, Smile Services DC. You can find him on Instagram at Dr. Teef, Dr. T-E-E-F. And since there's no better man in the land to see for your root canals, you know I had to get you on the show. Welcome, my man. Hey, how's it going, uh, Corey? I'm, I'm really honored to be here, man. Thank you so much for the invite. So before we get into Dr. Coombs, the dentist owner, tell us how it all started and what led to your love for healthcare. I've always had an interest in healthcare. Uh, my mother's an anesthesiologist, and um, I, I watched her my entire life uh, dedicate her, her craft and her career to finding ways to give back. Um, and, and so growing up seeing those things, growing up essentially in a hospital, um, uh, every weekend we were there watching her, just seeing her work. Um, it was almost kind of um, it was almost kind of ingrained that uh, regardless of of what I did, it was going to be something giving back, and um, I kind of built my desire for going into healthcare. Um, dentistry kind of came as a uh, as one of the fields that I was looking at um, in terms of I wanted to work in like a small focused area, uh, like a concentrated field. So I was looking at you know maybe orthopedic surgeons orthopedic surgery, uh, podiatry, um, uh, and, and dentistry. Uh, these are just all things that um, I like the idea of really being uh, focused on a small field and mastering that field. Um, you know, if you're kind of looking at, in general medicine, um, to me it seems daunting to try to master everything. Um, so with my mindset, uh, dentistry just kind of fell into that. So that's quite a list. I'd say it's safe to say you like a challenge. So out of orthopedics, podiatry, and dentistry, what ended up being the deciding factor for you? The reason why dentistry kind of went out over the uh, other things such as orthopedic uh, surgery was that I really liked the entrepreneurial aspect of it, um, the idea of owning your own business. Um, and then I loved the autonomy that, that dentistry had. Um, so that's kind of what, what catered me towards that. Um, I was in... I was a junior in college when I did a program called Profile for Success at University of Michigan. Um, for those of you who are interested in, in dentistry or medicine that are um, not quite in dental or medical school, uh, there are programs that different universities have that I really do encourage. That sounds like a great program. Can you tell us a bit more about how Profiles for Success had an impact on you? Uh, in that program, I, I really began to fall in love with uh, the actual art of dentistry, just um, uh, and and even more so, falling in love with the idea of rehabilitation. Um, you know, you would see all these before and after photos, uh, which look beautiful. But the thing that really drove me was hearing them talk about the differences in what um, people could do. You know, things things that we don't think of every day, such as uh, confidence of smiling, uh, with doing things such as applying for jobs, um, uh, pursuing different things that you want. Uh, simple things such as mastication and um, uh, occlusion, like being able to just bite into something. Uh, a majority of us take that for granted. Um, and every day I, I see conversations with people saying uh, that they're not able to 
uh, to do that in our job is to uh, bring back that, that aspect of their lives. Drop in gems, Albie. As promised, you know how we do on the Black Men in Medicine podcast. So you brought up entrepreneurship, and I love it. In the current climate, there's definitely been a bigger push and emphasis on owning, especially in the black community. But what put this on your radar so early in the game? Well, the, the, owning, the owning my own business, that really stems from um, uh, watching my father. You know, one of the things that uh, I've always just admired uh, was his work ethic. And, and what I remember of my childhood, my dad is he's always working. I mean, if he wasn't at work, uh, when he was home, he was working on something. Um, and when we were very young, he, um, he was an electrical engineer. He used to fix um, uh, the electrical systems and airplane engines. Um, and I remember one day uh, he got laid off. And, and when he talked about it, uh, one of the things that he talked about was how he dedicated so much hard work every single day and, um, and how he was just done. And all I kept thinking about was this company who just benefited from this man who dedicated his career to working for them um, was just one day replaced with uh, you know, someone who was cheaper uh, someone who actually he trained, and it, it broke his heart. Man, that's tough. How did you feel when you seen something like that? Um, and I, when I saw that, I said, you know, I, I don't want to spend my life uh, working for somebody. I don't want something like that to happen. You know, essentially, you, you not just provide uh, uh, financial uh, stability for, for that person, but uh, really just kind of dedication to, um, to their dream. Um, and so for that, it, it, two things happened. One, I realized that I wanted to work for myself. I did not want to pour all that effort um, to just make somebody else wealthy. Uh, and two, it also let me know the type of uh, person I wanted to be when in that position. Um, I wanted to make sure that I was able to not just give someone a salary because, you know, if um, you're just working for a paycheck, you'll be working for the rest of your life. But I wanted to provide... Uh, a culture where people could grow as I grow and then retire when I retire. Um, uh, I, I always, uh, I always kind of say a joke that whoever I sell my office to, uh, I, I kind of feel bad because, you know, I know all my staff is like, well, this is when I'm retiring too. Um, but my goal is to kind of, uh, to be the type of boss where um, uh, people don't feel like they've worked their hard life to make somebody rich and, and they didn't benefit themselves. Um, and it's, it's proven very rewarding for me. That's love, Albie. I love to see you out here doing it for the culture. It sounds like a true atmosphere fostering interdependence where everybody wins. I love it. On many of the sports teams I played for, shout out to my brody Richard Sherman for always pushing the envelope in the DB room. I felt that the team always did better when we shared ownership and felt equally invested. So salute to you for fostering that environment. Now that you made it, and you are the big boss. What's something you've learned from running your own business? Um, you know, being a business owner, obviously, you have the independence, you have the autonomy. Um, it is a lot of work. Many times, I feel like it's, it's harder, uh, just because the work never stops. But there's there's benefits to it. I, I sent pretty much every one of my staff members' kids to camp. Uh, I you know you know I've, I've helped them um, I've helped them with their homework before. Uh, we had our, one of our staff members who just had her baby came off maternity leave. Um, and so you, you, you kind of grow with these people and they become uh, an extension of your family. So, um, you know, I would say it started very young and then just kind of developed, um, you know, as I got older. And, and you constantly evolve to try to see what type of business owner, uh, what type of boss you want to be. Um, so, yeah. Constantly evolving. That's a great point, Albie which seems to be something that you've embodied since day one. What the audience may not know is you were that dude in the sports arena as well. You were, you know, three-sport athlete in football, wrestling, and track, killing it in high school. And then you went on to Kenyon College. You finished as a captain. You was the leading rusher with 4,350 yards. I mean, goddamn. And you were, you know, leading in <laughs> points and touchdowns, scoring 46 touchdowns and, you know, being number one um, in their school history, man. You know, so it was very evident that no matter what arena it is, you're going to show up and you're going to perform on a high level. What drives this passion for you? 
Well, I mean, you, you know, it's funny. As as you know, you know, once you take off the pads, the competitive edge doesn't stop. Um, and if you're fortunate enough to be able to concentrate that competitive edge into whatever your career is going to be, uh, you know, much like with anything else, you just continue to get better. Um, it's kind of nice because physically dentistry is a lot uh, easier than football. So uh, I don't have to worry about tearing my ACL when I go into work. Absolutely. Um, uh, but, but much like, um, you know, much like with sports, um, you know, I was, I was a running back. So, you know, we had before practice, there was pre-practice where you're working on your footwork. And then there was pre-pre-practice where you're working on your hand skills. And, uh, and then for me, I always had to work on catching. So I had pre-pre-pre-practice where I was just out, you know, catching, just working on hand. So, um, you have to have a love for it. Um, it's not something that you could do, uh, for, for any other value, um, other than just the love for it. And when I, uh, graduated from dental school, I had a love for dentistry, but then, uh, the passion really rose when I got involved with implant dentistry and, and rehabilitation. Um, uh, from there, I, I, I noticed a, a difference between, uh, not just my skill set, um, as a provider, but my skill set as a surgeon. Um, in about, in 2015, I joined the International Dental Implant Association, um, which is an organization that does, uh, surgical placement and restoration of dental implants and trains doctors to do that. Um, uh, implantology is still, uh, developing into a specialty now. Um, so, uh, there's a lot of these secondary schools that you can join to really hone those skills. Um, and so this was a school that I joined. Um, and from the first day, from the first lecture, I, I said, this is something I want to master. Um, uh, you know, everything else, I, I've always, I always want to be competent. I always want to um, be the best that I can. Uh, but this is something I wanted to say, you know, at the end of, at the end of this game, uh, my goal is to be world-renowned at this. We're over now. Hit them with that white coat drip. But this program you're talking about, it sounds pretty intense. What's one of the final things you had to do in order to graduate? Um, the master series, you have like a final exam where you, uh, it's a live patient exam. So you are doing a very difficult case um, uh, on a patient with other doctors around. Uh, I, you know, being a competitor, I loved it. You know, the, the, the big stage, as you know, Corey, when you get on that big stage, it's that's when you perform your best. Lights um, and, and I was, I was fortunate enough to, to pass, graduate from the International Dental Implant Association. I actually went back. Um, I now volunteer teach with them. Uh, and then I still take courses, uh, you know, so one of the beautiful things is as you kind of, um, get better at the skill set and grow and teach, uh, everybody has such different surgical techniques. Um, so you're able to just learn different things. And, um, because this is an international association, uh, we meet with surgeons all over the country. As you can imagine, a surgeon in India is trained different than a surgeon in the United States. Um, and you're able to just apply uh, various different techniques um, that aren't necessarily taught in the U.S. International with it. I love it. That sounds like a pretty exclusive skill set. Do you feel like you're at a point where you can teach other dentists and other students these techniques? Um, before COVID, I was actually heading down to, um, to the Dominican Republic, um, uh, to, uh, teach, to teach two days. And then I was doing surgery as a part of a, uh, single day rehabilitation course. Um, and obviously that's, that's moved back since then. But as soon as things are, are relieved, I'm, I'm diving right back into, uh, lecturing, teaching, uh, surgery. Uh, all these things that allow me to um, not only just practice and, and provide that skill to a patient, uh, but to teach that skill to other other providers um, so that they're able to uh, to provide that for other patients too. Truly, truly out here doing it for the culture. Big ups on all the success. But what's even more impressive is that you're reaching back and lifting others with you. With this success, I'm sure you've had some trying moments to get here. Can you tell us about one of these moments along your journey? Oh man. Um, if, if nothing gets remembered out of anything I say is, uh, you're gonna, you're gonna take your lumps. You're going to have your stumbles. You're going to have your falls. Um, 
you're, you're, that's just going to happen as a part of the career. It's called the practice of medicine, the practice of dentistry for a reason. Um, no matter how much education you get until you practice clinically, um, there's no way to, to master these things. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, there, there, I'll, I'll start at three phases, but the first phase is, um, I actually failed part one of my boards. Um, I was one of two students in my class who failed. Um, I failed by one point, which at the time, and I know the exams have changed, it came out to three questions. Now, I think they're pass and fail now, but if you can imagine having to take the exam over, it's something that is, is not, I mean, it, it's a kick in the gut. Um, but it is something that gives you an opportunity to overcome. And if you're able to overcome that, not only have you succeeded and proved something to yourself, you've also provided something for that next person who fails the exam and feels like, you know what, this is it, I'm going to drop out. I mean, you literally offer them a window to say, no, this is how I got through it. And um, uh, at the time when I did fail, uh, there was a, uh, a doctor of mine. I don't know if he wants people to know that he failed too, so I won't say his name, but, uh, but he had also failed uh, his step one uh, the, a year before. Uh, and I remember he pulled up to my dorm. He, uh, he said, come get in the car. And we sat talking with another brother. And um, he told me, he was like, you're going to do it because I did it. And I never thought I could do it. So you're going to do it. And, and it didn't, I didn't, obviously the weight wasn't lifted off your shoulder, but you saw the light. You actually said, okay, this is something I can do. And you did. And I'm glad you had that mentorship with you during that time of need. You know, mentorship comes up a lot on the show here, and I can't overemphasize that enough. So thank you for sharing that with us. But can you tell our audience why this test was so significant in your path to becoming a dentist? Uh, in order, at the time when we were taking the exam, in order for us to go into clinic, you have to have passed. Uh, I was fortunate that I took the exam early enough and failed early enough where I had enough time to retake it. And if I passed it in time, I could go into clinic. Um, so fast forward to after my second time uh, taking the exam, um, I, I show up to school for my first day of uh, third year, and excuse me, my first day of second year, and um, I'm literally sitting in the office. And the reason why I'm sitting in the office is because they, my scores haven't come back yet. So you can imagine I'm sitting in the office with the dean of students, a gentleman by the name of Mark Gonthier, who... Um, I, I care about DP. He's, uh, he's one of the most amazing dean of students that uh, I've known. Um, but we're sitting in there and we're waiting for a phone call um, from the committee to let me know whether I had passed or failed the exam. So all I'm thinking in my mind is, okay, uh, I'm either going to get up and go to clinic or I have to find a job to figure out what I'm going to do for the next year. And uh, I mean, I, I don't, uh, you know, uh, anybody here who's been in school and, and knows what it's like taking the exam, I mean, that's a big, that's a big choice that you're just going to hear and move on. Um, so I got the phone call and, and I, I passed. Um, uh, but for me, it was, it was a moment where I realized that, uh, you know, being tenacious, uh, being determined and, and really kind of having to, to suspend your own doubt was the only way to get, get through. That's a character moment, to say the least. How did you find the strength to overcome a hurdle like this? You have to decide if this is what you want to do. Um, uh, I, I think, you know, I think in times, there are times where you need to think globally, and then there's times where you need to have tunnel vision. And when it comes to boards, I mean, the mind isn't designed to take board exams, you know? Like, it's not designed to, to memorize 12 hours of information. And I think the exams have changed since then. But at the time, step one was eight hours. Step two was 12 hours. Your mind's not designed for these things. So uh, certain people are blessed with photographic memories. Um, uh, me, I'm, I'm, I've always been better clinically than I was uh, studying-wise. So for me, I had to just literally hone every single thing that I had uh, uh, to this exam. Um, I mean, I don't think I listened to music for like two months, you know, I mean, everything that was coming in my ear was the board exam. Um, wow, I, 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 and so, 
the only thing I do, the only two breaks I would have is I'd wake up at like 4 a.m. I'd work out from like 4 to 5.30. And then I would just study uh, until I passed out. Um, uh, I, you know, I had to remind myself to eat. Straight grinding. I get it. I've had to uh, study and sit for one of those board exams myself. So believe me, they're no fun, as you can imagine. But with so much pressure on this situation and so much tied to your successful dream and becoming a dentist, how did you keep going? Did you have anything for motivation? Um, there, there's, a, there's a motivational speaker named um, Eric Thomas. And one of, uh, he has two things that I love. Uh, he always says, what's your why? And, um, and for me, I knew that if the exam is where I stopped, everything that I wanted to do, everything that I wanted to build dies with that. And, and, and so I knew my why this exam wasn't bigger than my why. So I just knew I had to get through it. And then, you know, I said before my, my other colleague, who um, he went through it, when I saw that he was able to get through it, I said, okay, that there is a path to get to, get to the end of this exam. Um, and then the second thing that I, I absolutely love is, uh, and if you guys don't get a chance, I mean, listen, Eric Thomas, he just has some gems, but he says, when you want to succeed as bad as you want to breathe, that's when you'll be successful. Uh, and he tells a wonderful story about, um, a, and I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm paraphrasing the story, um, but he tells a wonderful story about um, a kid who was in the water and, and a, a, a man holds his head under the water and he holds it under, he holds it under and the guy's struggling, struggling, struggling. And the kid jumps up out of the water and, um, and, and, he, and he says that statement. He's like, you know, the, the way you needed that breath while you were underwater, that's how bad you want it. And, um, and that's how I live, I live my life every day. Uh, not just with dentistry, with dentistry, with my marriage, with my son. Uh, which still going to the gym and trying to stay in shape. Uh, these things, they don't guarantee success, um, but, you know, it, it gives you a better chance at it. It gives you the best shot at it. So uh, for anybody who has failed boards, uh, you know, some of the best clinicians I know they've gone through it, um, it it's a road bump. It's, just, it's You know, it's a road bump. Uh, it's a success story. It's a part of your journey. Um, I, I don't know who like needs to hear this. Uh, I kind of feel like I'm in church from the pastors. Like, I don't know who needs to hear this message, but um, <laughs> I guarantee there's somebody who's on this podcast who, who was going through it, whether it's silently or publicly. Um, and, and what my guess is that if you were able to get past the DAT, the MCAT, uh, your exams, if you were able to get to boards, you have the skill set to do it. Uh, you just got to find the energy and, um, you know, so don't let it discourage you. It's, it's a part of your success story. Uh, and everybody loves a comeback kid. You know, everybody loves somebody who comes from it, and, and it, it just gives other people hope. Um, you know, God bless those who, who just succeed naturally. Um, and that's a wonderful thing, but a majority of us aren't like that. I agree with you 100%. I definitely love a good comeback story. We commonly say on the show, resiliency is a prerequisite for success, and you are definitely resilient in that moment. Have you ever had a moment like this in clinic? Uh, after I've recently graduated, um, I was just, I was new practicing and I, I didn't do a residency. I went straight into private practice, practice. Um, and there's, you know, I, I can definitely, um, I can definitely talk more about that, but, um, you know, there's just a decision that I had made at the time. Uh, but in private practice, you know, I, you're seeing patients and I remember that I was doing a, uh, my first root canal, um, in private practice. And it was not going well. Uh, it, it really wasn't. Um, anesthesia wasn't very proficient. Um, the patient was very sore. And um, I was really concerned because, you know, this is my first big procedure and things just weren't as ideal. Um, I did something that I, I to now, today I wouldn't do. But at the time, um, I gave the patient my cell phone number. And uh, the reason why I did that is because I wanted, if she was in pain because of something I did, I wanted her to be able to reach out to me and talk to me and, and, and kind of explain what she's feeling. Uh, and sure enough, at about two o'clock in the morning, she called me and she's in, she's crying and she's in tears and I'm sitting there, you know, just feeling horrible. And, uh, I made a vow to myself. I said, you know, I'm going to master this. I'm going to make sure that I don't 
do this to a patient. I mean, my intentions were good. Obviously, I wanted to help this patient out, but my skill set wasn't there. Uh, now, there's nothing I could have done to get my skill set there other than practice, uh, but it made me determine to really master uh, my field. And um, after that, I, I dedicated so much time to continuing education. Uh, and if I didn't know something uh, or if I had missed something, I was studying, I was learning, I was taking courses, um, which really, you know, and, and so now, I mean, I, I think today I did four root canals. So, uh, and, and I know they're not going to have pain. Uh, they don't have my cell phone number anymore. But, um, but I, you know, I, 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 I know because I dedicated my time then to say, you know what, I need to master this. I didn't say, you know what, I'm never going to do a root canal again. Uh, and if I would have did that, then I couldn't be a service to my community in the way that I am now. There's a few more gems for you right there, ladies and gentlemen. Love it, LB. Spitting hot fire. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing some of those hurdles with the audience today. They're valuable life lessons. Truly inspiring. Resiliency is definitely a prerequisite for success. And the challenges don't stop. They just change form. So tell us a bit about how you've been able to manage your own private practice, smile services, even during a pandemic? Oh, man. Uh, excellent question. So um, w- one, of the, one of the benefits of taking a lot of CE and training and, and, and practicing, uh, seeing a lot of patients is that uh, you can, your skill sets are wide. Uh, so everything from, you know, cleaning, fillings to extractions to implants to root canals, uh, crown and bridge, um, sinus lifts. I mean, once you've kind of developed a lot of these skill sets under your belt, um, uh, there are certain things that are considered, you know, non-essential treatment, like veneers. Uh, and then there's certain things that are essential. You know, if someone walks in your office with an abscess, uh, you need to drain it, you need to take the tooth out or, or do a root canal. Um, by, by being able to do all those skill sets, you're able to uh, navigate and, and, and kind of change over what you need to do. You can adapt. Um, so one of the things that we've had to adapt um, in this time period is essentially I've turned my private practice into a clinic. Uh, so we've, uh, for the past two months, we've seen just exclusively emergencies. Um, so, I mean, I, I've taken out more teeth in this past uh, two months than I can count. Um, but we're able to do that. Um, uh, some of the practices, the, the PPE you guys may have heard, um, some, a lot of the things that they were having offices change to, uh, we had been doing already. Um, I won't go too deep into it, but uh, when you're doing a lot of rehabilitation, implant placement, um, you know, if you do surgery in the OR, you have these fans that, that you know, you, you have, if you're coming in and you're, you're drilling on a leg, you're doing a, um, uh, you have bone fire, bone particles that go into the air. Uh, you know, the next person comes in, if you're doing plastic surgery, well, if those bone particles are still in the air, they're going to float down into your case. So ORs have these filtration systems that, that clean out the air every certain period. Um, so uh, what, and this is not, you know, this is something that a lot of um, doctors who place implants do. A lot of us have air filters in our office because, you know, we're not going to go into the OR every time to place an implant. Uh, so these air filters clean the air out. Um, so we were doing this kind of before COVID happened. Um, so a lot of these things that we set aside to kind of uh, to have the environment be as sterile as possible, we were already doing. Has the COVID pandemic changed the type of patient population you can see? The population that I see is um, uh, primarily, I would say it's about 60% Medicaid, uh, uh, patients where the government pays for the dental treatment. Um, and uh, unfortunately, in that population, there's a lot of dental neglect. So COVID or no COVID, you know, these emergencies don't stop. Um, and then typically 40% uh, fee-for-service patients who pay out of pocket or patients have private insurance. Uh, well, since COVID, uh, that, that percentage has changed drastically to now we're seeing almost 95% Medicaid um, and about 5% uh, private insurance or fee-for-service because everything's an emergency. So the amount of patients that are out there haven't changed, but the healthcare disparities with seeing... Um, you know, underserved populations is still always going to be there. Have you been able to keep all your staff members? Um, fortunately, as of now, I've, I've been able to keep my staff, um, uh, you know, but that's always, you know, there's obviously financial challenges that come into play. Um, uh, but our main focus has just been providing care. Um, I, I fully believe that 
uh, if you take care of your community, the community takes care of you. Uh, and, and, you know, we haven't missed a meal. Um, you know, uh, the, the staff has stayed paid, you know, the staff has been paid. Uh, you know, people have brought in gifts. Now we've had to throw out the gifts because of COVID. Uh, but people have brought us in food and things like that because they appreciate us uh, still being available. We didn't just shut it down and say, you know what, uh, we're going to wait this out. What was the driving force behind you staying open? Because from a safety standpoint, I could see shutting down shop being a safer option. Um, you know, we signed up for this. You know, we, we uh, our job as healthcare providers is to uh, to serve, you know, uh, to, to be there in the times that are hard. Um, when people ask me, are you going to close down? Uh, you know, the one thing I said is, you know, I, I travel to other countries that have, you know, that have disease, that have these different things to provide health care. Um, so why wouldn't I take care of my home? You know, we have to be safe. We have to make sure that um, uh, we practice all the, the right sterilization techniques um, and trying to keep ourselves healthy. Uh, but that's what we signed up for. I mean, much like, you know, you don't want a cop to say, look, you know, it's too hard in these streets. I'm going to quit my job. You don't want a soldier to be like, this war is too dangerous. I'm going to go home. You know, as healthcare providers, uh, we need to do what we can in our capacity uh, to find a way to help people through this pandemic because, you know, better dental emergencies are still going to exist. Uh, we have to provide care. That's what our oath is for. I definitely stand behind that. Much respect for what you're doing out there for the DMV community. You mentioned you've been able to practice overseas in developing nations. Have any of those experiences prepared you for the environment we are in now? Well, you know, in terms of the specifics of the virus, you know, there's so much that's still unknown. And so in terms of the the details on kind of what's next and, you know, any of my past experiences, uh, I, you know, it's hard, it's hard to say how it will help in, in specific relation to the virus. Uh, but the one thing I will say is that, um, you know, typically when uh, we travel, uh, for example, uh, the hurricane that recently hit the Bahamas, there's a group called Rumble Area Medical um, that I work with often. And, and a lot of times they give you a call and usually, you know, sometime at night and they say, hey, we need a healthcare provider to come down uh, because there's a huge population that needs a certain procedure. Um, uh, and for those of you who are graduating remote area medical, uh, I don't get paid by them or anything like that, but it is a great organization. Uh, if you are looking to find ways to give back, uh, it is addicting. Once you do something like that and you're going into a clinic and you're helping patients out, uh, you're going to want to do it all the time. Um, uh, but anyway, the, the reason why I brought that up is because, you know, we get that to the clinic. We are open from seven to seven. Uh, the line of patients that are there, it is physically impossible to see them all. So your goal is to try to see as many as you can to provide the best care as possible, um, literally until, you know, you know it's time to stop until you cannot give any more. And uh, it's kind of very similar with with COVID's going on. You know, we have to limit the patients that we see. Uh, So I try to see as many as I can while still keeping all the CDC rules in place. Um, and, And then from there, it's like once, you know, you've given all you got, you shut down, you go home, you rest, you thank God that you're still healthy. But please believe if there's any juice in the tank, we're going to try our best to, uh, you know, to, to help out. Absolutely. I agree with you 100 um, percent. I can definitely hear the fulfillment you receive when you're taking care of patients. And that's that's amazing. Um, but we all do. Right. That's why we agree to go into the field of medicine. You know, like in my case. You know, that's why the physicians or aspiring physicians, while we get up at four or five o'clock in the morning to go to the hospital and figure out the best way to take care of someone's heart complications or liver complications, you know, it's that fulfillment, right? But on the contrary, what keeps you going or what refuses you when you take that time and that diligence to perform a procedure and your patients come right back to you because they didn't follow your post-procedure guidelines or just don't give their teeth that proper TLC? So uh, that's an awesome question. Um, to, I'll start first with kind of the the mental separation of uh, the oral cavity and the rest of the body. Um, a lot of people miss the link between it, um, uh, and and unfortunately, they almost think of their mouth as a separate entity, uh, which is ironic because you know it's something you have to use every single day. You know, it's something that is, it's, it's an integral part of, of how you survive. Um, and a lot of times your oral health will dictate your, um, the health of the rest of the body. 
Um, so I spend a large portion of my practice uh, doing patient education. Um, uh, I will not proceed with treatment unless I feel the patient understands uh, what we're doing and why we're doing. Um, and, and I'll just, I'll go back, I'll rewind probably maybe maybe about six to seven years ago. Uh, I used to have a level of frustration when I would, I would do this root canal and it would be perfect and the patient's out of pain and they're happy and they love me. And, and it's just, it's like you feel good about yourself. And then you, you see them three years later and they broke the tooth because they never got a crown. And, um, it, you know, they, those, there are one or two ways that they go about it. One, you know, uh, they'll say, well, you know, doc, you did a great job. You know, I just, I don't know what happened. My teeth are bad. Uh, or, you know, some will be like, well, you did a bad root canal three years ago. And it's like, well, three years, you know, you didn't eat anything for three years. So, but anyway, both those responses have to deal with patient education. And what I realized is that if you don't explain to a patient how they got there, how we'll fix it, and how not to get back to that situation that they were in before, um, almost the work that we do, it gets lost. Um, and, and I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, you, you have a, a kid who comes in, he eats a lot of candy. And uh, so he eats candy, gets a cavity. Uh, you fill the cavity, you know. Uh, he continues to eat the candy. He gets a new cavity and it's bigger. So you need to end up doing a root canal in the crown. Uh, continues to eat candy. And then because of the candy, he cracks the tooth. Uh, and now you have to take the tooth out and then you put an implant in. And then he eats candy. And before you know, he's breaking other teeth. Well, what's happened there is that I have provided treatment, but I have not educated the patient so that he can avoid that. And it, you can't keep going down the same road, can't keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. So before I do a filling, before I do a root canal, before I do an implant, the first thing I do is explain to the patient, okay, well, this is why the cavity developed. This is why the infection developed. This is why you had to get the tooth taken out. So once this procedure is done, you need to also change the behavior. Uh, and what I've noticed is that um, I've had less people coming back with the same problem. On the same topic, what's one of the biggest problems you commonly deal with? Um, uh, one of the biggest things that we deal with is, is partial dentures. So um, uh, you know, some of the patients, they have partial dentures. And they think, okay, I wear my dentures so that it looks like I have teeth. So I wear it when I'm out, but when I'm home or when I eat, I take them out. Well, the whole point of a denture, the reason why it's, it's medically necessary is not so that you can look pretty. It's so that it can give you teeth to chew on or false teeth to chew on um, so that you're not having to chew with teeth that aren't designed to chew or you're not having to incise food with teeth that aren't designed to incise food. Um, but most patients just... You know, they think, oh, I'm just wearing this so that it looks like I have teeth. By just merely educating a patient, I mean, that's a, what did I say? That's 30 seconds I said it. It changes how they think of their dentures, their partial dentures, um, which in turn can, can decrease the amount of dental work that they need by a tremendous amount. Um, you know, they're not cracking teeth because they're not wearing their partials. Um, it, it, you know, so these are all things that... Um, I really push this patient education. Some patients, uh, they may not want to be educated. Um, so one of the few things uh, that I do is that if a patient's not willing to learn and change, I, I usually won't work on them because uh, then it just becomes, it becomes dangerous because now you're having to explain things after the fact versus before. Uh, you explain to a patient before, hey, if you eat candy after you do this, you're going to break your tooth. Is a lot different than when they come in afterwards and they say, oh, well, you ate candy. One sounds like an explanation. The other sounds like an excuse. Uh, and one thing as healthcare providers, if we don't educate, a lot of that falls back on us, unfortunately. Um, I often joke and I tell patients, I say, well, I'm a dental educator. And as my side hustle, I do dentistry. Uh, because, you know, like uh, <laughs> to take out a tooth might take me six minutes, but to explain to the patient why I'm taking out the tooth, to explain to them all the things that they have to do may take me 45 minutes. And if it takes 45 minutes, but as a result, I don't have to pull more teeth because they're doing the right things to make sure that their, their oral health is taken care of, then for me, that's a win-win. You know, they're happy, I'm happy, the healthcare works, 
they're not they're not spending excess money or uh, utilizing the you know or or, or uh, putting more emphasis on the system or using more finances on the system to take care of things that we could prevent. Uh, preventative medicine, although it may not be profitable, is much financially it is much more valuable for the patient's sake and for the doctor's sake. Um, Collar popping and gym dropping. Dr. Coombs, ladies and gentlemen, um, wise words, man, wise words. I'm also a big advocate of preventative health care. I actually conducted some research with some of my colleagues at Stanford. Shout out Dr. Dragu and Dr. Thompson. But we looked at ways to prevent ACL tears in female athletes, which is an extremely high risk demographic for these types of injuries. But the point is, we found that these preventative techniques help decrease these ACL tears in these athletes which ultimately helps them spend more time on the field doing the things they love and equally important prevents them from spending hours in a rehab facility, running up bills and overall just having a better quality of life. So I imagine with the type of care you're implementing, you have great rapport and respect from your patients. How about your peers? Do you get the same kind of respect from your peers in the field? You know, I, I have been fortunate. I could probably count on on one hand, uh, the, the 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 patients that have caused uh, you know excessive amounts of, of trouble. Um, uh, I've been fortunate in the fact that uh, in the community that I am in in DC, uh, the patients are kind of receptive, and you're surprised at how it kind of bleeds through into other things. Um, and, and I'll give an example. You know, we have. We, we see a large portion of Medicaid throughout the city. So if I'm going to a, a dental conference uh, in the city, there's a high probability that if they're going to be in a hotel, which means that you're going to have doormen, you're going to have people that are serving food, there's a high probability that one of those people are one of your patients. Um, and, and there's always something that's amazing where... You, you see them and you feel the love and response from that, that patient in a public setting. And your colleagues are like, oh, wow, that's just that's kind of that's not something that you typically see. Um, if you are staple in your community and you're present in your community, uh, it, it, just, it just shows. I mean, it's not something you have to fake. It's not something you have to advertise. Uh, I, it has been, uh, we've been on open for five business. I've, I've never marketed. Uh, everything is word of mouth. Um, and so uh, as you continue to build that, um, your, your reputation begins to proceed because, um, you know, people will say, oh, well, I know a doctor that can do this, you know, Dr. Coombs. And they'll say, well, who's Dr. Coombs? And, uh, and then, you know, they call you and they pick your brain and you send them cards. Um, you know, one of the things that, um, like I said, my concentration is implants. They are not, they're, they're doc- there's a lot of doctors who place implants. Uh, there's another doctor that restore. Um, um, part of a small section that does both. I, I, repl- I place implants and I restore implants. Um, uh, and so a lot of times if uh, somebody is trying to look up somebody who can do both of these things, uh, whether it's a dentist who's looking for a patient or a patient who's looking, um, a lot of times we kind of pop up. Um, it, it, and so you just kind of get this reputation. People are like, well, who is this guy? Uh, and if, you're, if your reputation is someone who gives back, someone who just tries to do right by the patient's, uh, you kind of earn that that respect amongst your counterparts. Um, people kind of tend to send you patients because they know, well, I know his patients seem to be happy. And at the end of the day, that's what matters, you know, a happy patient. Where would you say a lion's share of your patients come from? You guys may not be familiar with D.C., but I live in an area called Anacostia. Uh, it's in the southeast of D.C. It's 98.9% black. Um, so I live with my patients. Um, uh, so... You know, in terms of building a community, I'll be jogging and uh, and I'll see my patients all the time or, you know, driving or um, I'll be in the grocery store with my son. Um, uh, you know, one of the things uh, that I absolutely love is uh, when I go to the grocery store, one of the patients is what's at Whole Foods. So she gives my son a free smoothie every time he walks in. So my, my son thinks every time you go into Whole Foods, you get a free smoothie. <laughs> um, and, and so but. But it's love. It's the fact that, you know, she had an emergency. I took care of her once, you know, years ago. Uh, but she's like, you know what, this person took care of me and I, I, I want to take care of them. I, I drive like, you know, I drive like the same car I've been driving for a year and I'll drive it until it breaks down. It's just, 
you know, it's back to the days of like the neighborhood dentist or the neighborhood doctor. Right. Um, uh, and so, um, one of my mentors growing up, Dr. Leo Whitworth, I used to admire him because he was like that. He was like the neighborhood dentist. And, uh, you would just see him in Mattapan Square, uh, uh, right above Casey. That's where his office was. And you might see him in Casey's eating a beef patty, you know, and, uh, or you might see him mowing his lawn. Um, his, his son was a, an amazing athlete. So, you know, you would, you would see him at, uh, football games all the time. So, um, that was one of my mentors that I, I love to see, and that was something that I, I wanted to be a part of. So. so it sounds like this mentor definitely left a big impression on you. What would you say from him or just daily life experience that has led to the three biggest principles you live by to date? Oh, man, that's, that's a good one. Um, three principles. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, you want to treat every patient, um, uh, you know, almost the same way you would treat a family member or, or, or just someone or someone that you would, that you care, love and revere. Um, this does not mean perfection by the way, uh, cause you can't be perfect. Uh, what it means is that you've done everything within your power, your training, your education, your skill set. you've done everything with your power to provide the best care at that time. Uh, feeling that that care is what is needed at that time. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have times where you have errors or you see things that you're like, you know what, you know, five years later, man, I, I should have did this differently. Uh, but what that means is typically if you're if you're going in with that mentality of to do unto others as you would do unto yourself, um, you, uh, you you will have a, a moral compass that will that will keep you on the right path. Um, so that's a big thing. Um, uh, the second thing I would say is to find a mentor. Um, uh, and, and so, uh, find a mentor and be a mentor. So uh, everything that you've done, um, up to this point, whether you're in school, whether you're a new provider, whether you've been practicing for 10 years, um, someone else has gone through it. Uh, it very few people are inventing the wheel, um, which means that if you're able to find a mentor, who has experienced certain things, you're able to learn from their successes, but also learn from their mistakes um, and utilize that to kind of evolve uh, your practices. Um, uh, I would also say to, to mentor someone. Um, if you're able to, to mentor someone, um, it, you know, you always got to look up. You know, we always have a habit of looking up, right? You want to look up to the next level, but you don't realize that the person below you is looking up to you. Um, uh, some of my biggest mentors who, uh, who have been looking, I've been looking up to since I was almost 26 years old, uh, Dr. Nathan Fletcher, Dr. Leo Wedworth, uh, Dr. Kevin Granger, these are heavy hitters in the general community. I always look up to them, and they're going to keep elevating. I'm going to keep looking up. But what you realize is as you rise, there are people who look up to you, reaching down to them, giving them that, that, that positive feedback, uh, giving them that, that constructive criticism that comes from a true place of love, not, not from a place of um, you, you know, I'm better than you, but hey, I've made that mistake and this is what I did to get through it. Uh, and not saying that that's the way you need to get through it, but here's what I did, you know, take the information. I think that's the key to not just elevating yourself, not just success with yourself, but success for the next generation. Um, anytime I look at, uh, you know, when I go speak at different schools at Howard Dental School, Tufts University, uh, I'm always amazed at, at the next level that, that the next generation is thinking. I think the next generation is so global and like, how do we take the skill set and get it to the rest of the world? Um, and and I, I think that's amazing. You know, definitely finding a mentor and being a mentee, it doesn't just elevate yourself. It elevates the entire perspective, the entire craft. Uh, it elevates us as black healthcare providers. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's definitely my second one. Uh, my last one I would say is always give back. Always give back. Find a way to give back. Even if you have nothing, find a way to give back. Um, there is something to be said about uh, altruism. Um, it, it's just something to be said about giving without the expectation of giving back where you're going to be blessed tenfold. Um, and, and, and I found that in my career. I found the more I, I gave, is the more I begin to receive, and, and which is the more I've been able to give. Uh, there's a prayer I say every single morning, uh, God bless me so I can bless others. And, and if you live your life by that, 
I, I just find that it, it, you just continue to get blessed and you continue to bless others. And like I said, it's not without its hardships. It's not without its stress. It's not without its mistakes. It's definitely not without its demons. But at the end of the day, when you sleep at night, you know, when you wake up, when you're able to practice your craft, um, you just, you're going to be blessed. Um, you know, you'll be blessed, you know, whether it's financially, whether it's health and strength, uh, whether it's these, you know, these small things that, um, uh, that you find later, you know, in the future, um, there, there are people, um, there are people who have called me and have said, Hey man, you did this thing back in the day and I remembered it and, and, and it's why I do this. And the thing that they're doing is 10 times better than something you've ever done. Um, uh, you know, it's just amazing. I mean, I don't know for the listeners, but I went to school with Corey and, and Corey would be, Corey would say something like, uh, Hey man, you know, I looked up to you and I look at Corey like a superstar. Like I, I think of this kid is like, man, this kid is amazing. And, um, and, and that, I brag about him all the time. And, and, and it's amazing because there are things that you said that I've, I've done to help you that I don't remember. I mean, you know, uh, but the right. things that I see you do is, is just, it's reached a level that with my hands, I, I would never be able to reach. I mean, even something like this podcast, uh, you've done something that's going to be solidified. Like people on the internet will be able to, to, to hear us in our, our, our little Boston accents trying to play, figure out a way to give back. Uh, they'll be able to hear that for a lifetime. And, and that's something that you're being able to give. Uh, my favorite thing about teaching is that, you know, if you're practicing clinically, you have two hands. If you're able to teach students who are able to teach students, you now have millions of hands, millions of hands that are able to provide health care. So um, definitely always get back. I mean, I, I don't know how I'd rank them, but if I had to rank one, that would be number one. Treat others as you like to be treated. Be a mentor, find a mentor. Always give back. And there you have it. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we'll be back with another episode of the Black Men in Medicine podcast, bringing you nothing but the gyms. Tune in. We did that. If you want to find out more about what we're doing with the Black Men in Medicine movement, you can check us out at www.blackmenandmed.com, www.blackmenmed.com, where you'll see highlights of black male physicians holding down the mission to serve in the hospital and surrounding communities. We provide a platform for medical doctors down to the pre-medical level to get connected with mentorship, scholarships, and collaborative medical projects. We are here for change. We are here to stay. Let's get connected. Make sure you tune into another episode of the Black Man in Medicine podcast, bringing you nothing but the gyms.